there's just an unfortunate hooligan aspect to kind of any protest, and there are going to be people who are going to break windows and spray paint. And the last two hours of last night, from five to seven, which all most all the nonviolent protesters had already left, and the streets were left over to the violent people. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack. Let them go! Let them go! Let them go! Let them go! Let them One of the most important tools we have used to protect the American people is the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act closed dangerous gaps in America's law enforcement and intelligence capabilities, gaps the terrorists exploited when they attacked us on September the 11th. And welcome back to Barely Getting By, the long 1990s. So every week before we put together the podcast, Emma and I share some notes, just really some talking points about what we want to talk about on the podcast. And what I've noticed is in Emma's notes for this episode, she has made a very clear point right at the top of this episode, which is all about George W. Bush and September 11. And I'd like to invite Emma to open the podcast with with her very declarative statement about the Bush presidency. Thank you, uh, Chloe. Yes, I, I do have a very pointed statement, um, which reads, Bush was appointed, in italics, underlined, president by the Supreme Court of the United States in 2000. I think we often slip into saying Bush won the 2000 election. He did not. And just to reiterate, this isn't about your Al Gore fan fiction, is it? It's not. No, unfortunately, we weren't really able to to sneak that in as another digression into this series of the podcast. <laughs> okay, so... Emma, tell me more about George W. Bush, apart from the fact that he was appointed to the presidency. How, how did he get there? Sure. Well, he, um, I think like many people, came obviously from a political family. He went to Yale, there it is again, and then he went to Harvard Business School um, and then ran for president, of course, in 2000 after being the governor of Texas. Um, before the election in 2000, Bush gave no real indication of, of kind of what his vision for the United States in the world was, because, of course, that, that's going to be our focus today. Um, but we do know that he's against Bill Clinton's so-called nation building. So he's not really interested in the kind of peacekeeping role that the United States has been attempting to play in the 1990s. Um, but we do get a kind of indication of, of what his foreign policy might look like by his appointments. So he appoints kind of foreign policy hawks and neocons in Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. And, and that kind of suggests to us that the US is going to, you know, not play a, um, I suppose, collegiate role in the world. These, these guys hate multilateralism. So after he steals the election from Al Gore, maybe that's probably that's me going a bit too far and editorialising a bit. Um, anyway, he is inaugurated as president in January of 2001. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. So I think, you know, this is September 11. It is, it is an event and a tragedy that is seared onto our memories. I think, you know, it's fair to say that it, would be, it was a formative moment for both of us who were young teenagers at the time. 
I think it's also an interesting one to reflect on as someone who's taught history because the number of students I've, I've, I've um, taught in the past who have no memory of what the Berlin Wall was, but for whom September 11 is, you know, really, I guess, kind of the, the first historical event they truly remember. It's interesting to reflect on that in its own right. It's also, I think, quite interesting to go back and reflect on it as the US and indeed the world faces really the greatest and possibly a greater crisis than September 11 presented in 2001. So Emma, can you tell me tell me what happened? Yeah, sure. And I think just just on that, Chloe, as well, that it, as much as you know, we we teach students to who this was a kind of formative political moment, as it certainly was for us. Increasingly now, it's getting to the point where you know you have students who were babies when it happened, so they have very vague memories of you know prep teachers being being devastated and and being frightened, but no real concrete um, memory of what happened. So so it is worth revisiting those events, I think. So on on the eleventh of September in in two thousand and one. 19 terrorists hijacked four planes, flew two of them into the Twin Towers in New York City. The third was flown into the Pentagon, so the kind of heart of United States defense. And the fourth crashed in Pennsylvania, was brought down by the passengers on board. Um, This was the last plane, and those passengers basically knew what their plane was going to be used for, so um, they took it down. We think that plane was headed for the US Capitol, so the seat of Congress, um, effectively Parliament, um, not into the White House, as is sometimes claimed. In the end, 2,977 people died in those attacks. And that number, um, for very unfortunate reasons, which Chloe kind of alluded to earlier, is coming up in the news, I think, now, again, in terms of our current crisis, because as of right now, at the time of recording, just over 140,000 Americans have died from COVID-19. And if I have my maths correct, that means that we've looked at, so far, roughly one September 11 attack every day for 47 days in a row. So that, I think, sort of puts those numbers in perspective. But having said that, of course, you know, 9-11 was a cataclysmic event, um, not just in the United States, but across the world. And I think for the US in particular, it is, to me at least, undoubtedly the, the end or one ending to the 1990s for the US, I think both at home and for the United States and its role in the world. I think that's, I think that's absolutely fair to say. And I'm going to throw a question at you that you threw at me in the last instalment. So September 11, it seems to come out of nowhere. Is that is that a fair assessment? Did it come out of nowhere? No, I think I'm gonna, I'm going to give a similar answer to you in that in that no, it didn't it didn't come out of nowhere. Of course, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing, but there were certainly indications in the lead up to the attack that something big was coming. I think many people would be familiar with the, you know, the kind of story of George Bush failing to read his intelligence briefing, something that's coming up again with this current um, president, um, without, you know, without going into the detail of it, because of course, you know, in my usual fashion, I could spend hours of this, the origins of these attacks by uh, 19 terrorists, 50, 15 of whom were Saudis, um, the origins of that lie in, I think, multiple things kind of coalescing at once. So we can go back a long way, historically speaking, and look at the rise of political Islam, particularly going back to the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt in the 1920s. And 
American policies in the Middle East. Um, Osama bin Laden, who orchestrated these attacks, is is kind of made as a as a figure in Afghanistan during the war with the Soviets in the 1980s. But for our purposes, I suppose, when we're talking particularly about the 1990s and the role of that really significant decade to us, the thing that really radicalizes the mastermind of these attacks, Osama bin Laden, against the United States in particular, you know, the reason the United States become the focus of his fury, um, the origins of that lie in the 1991 Gulf War, so the, the war that the United States under the under Bush senior waged against Iraq, and, and particularly for Osama bin Laden, the stationing of large numbers of American troops in Saudi Arabia, so on Holy Land. So it's this particular fact, the US presence on Holy Land and American support for Israel, that radicalises bin Laden and, and starts laying the groundwork for these attacks. And I think that, you know, one of the things that really strikes me when you do go over the events of September 11th, 2001, is the symbolism of the sites that were chosen for attack and how much how much they do say about the US's global role and perceptions of US global power because obviously you know there were attacks targeting the Pentagon which is the center of the US defense establishment there you know there is I guess an understanding that there were also attacks on the political on the political institutions of the United States but the most successful and the most you know I guess the attacks that are seared on on our memories are the attacks on the World Trade Center towers, which are themselves a potent symbol of American capitalism and American American economic power in the world, which is something that we keep coming back to and certainly, I guess, is one of the unavoidable facts of the 1990s that was very much brought to light in these attacks. And that's, you know, and I say that, you know, I talk about these symbols at the risk of, I hope, I hope without cheapening, the human toll of that day. I say that with, you know, almost 20 years of hindsight. How did the Bush administration perceive the attacks? What did it understand them to, to mean and to represent? So I think as, as much as you, you are absolutely right, Chloe, that the, the Twin Towers in particular are symbols of US economic dominance, of, of globalisation. These attacks didn't prompt a reflection on the United States' role in the world in that way. Um, the Bush administration, which, as we know, you know, is very young. Bush has only been in office for, I think, under um, nine months. It doesn't engage in a kind of self-reflection. What, what they land on is, um, I guess, questions more of pretty simple morality, of, of binary morality of, of good or evil. So Americans start to ask themselves the question of, of why, why do they hate us? Why do people hate us so much that they would do this egregious thing to us? And the answer that wins out, you know, certainly there are, there are other voices, but the answer that wins, up, wins out at the time is about good versus evil and a, and a clash of civilizations. And I think it's probably worth adding here, um, especially to our conversation last week, Chloe, about the nature of history and, and the role of history that I think, you know, for what it's worth, um, as historians, I don't, I don't think we should kind of be addressing those questions of, you know, why do they hate us? Why do, why do people hate Americans? Um, or, or the, the other kind of related question, which I think comes up in people's minds or, or a suggestion maybe 
that the United States had it coming, you know, because of this role that it was playing in the Middle East or whatever, the United States had this attack coming. Um, I I would be really reluctant um, to deal with that kind of question. I think as historians, we should be dealing with questions of motives, the kind of enabling conditions that allow these attacks to happen and the consequences. I think that's, you know, at the risk of going into a boring methodological conversation I think that that is it's an important one and it's one that we've kind of touched on throughout this podcast when we've been looking at people's motivations in the 1990s and you know I guess how much our role is to judge them or to second guess them or to ask them to do different things like I remember when we've spoken about Bill Clinton in the past, and you know, I'm quite, I'm quite scathing of Bill Clinton and his policies. I'm very scathing of Hillary Clinton as a political actor today, but I don't know that that's necessarily a historian's job to be condemning the past. It's our job is to understand it. That said, so what what were the consequences of September 11 for the US and particularly its foreign policy? So the, the consequences are significant. I think they, they're really transformative, I think. So the, the most obvious, I suppose, consequence for the world is that we have the beginning of the so-called war on terror. So in the immediate aftermath of the attack, Congress authorises President Bush to do pretty much whatever he wants in responding to the attacks. Um, and the result, the immediate result of that in, in the weeks after the attack is the war in Afghanistan, um, which is now the longest war in United States history. At home, um, Congress also gives wide-ranging powers to the president and other institutions. It creates the Department of Homeland Security, and it also passes something called the Patriot Act, um, which officially is the uniting and strengthening America by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism act. What a mouthful. The USA Patriot Act. And one of the most important tools we have used to protect the American people is the Patriot Act. Patriot Act closed dangerous gaps in America's law enforcement and intelligence capabilities, gaps the terrorists exploited when they attacked us on September the 11th. And that passes with only one vote against it. Now, a lot of that act um, is about terrorism. It's about combating terrorism. But this act in particular is also what unleashes, I think, is a new era of, of mass surveillance. So listeners might be might recall the um, the leak of documents by a guy called Edward Snowden, um, who who fled America after revealing that the United States was engaged in mass surveillance and and was also doing things like listening to the phone conversations of world leaders like Angela Merkel in Germany to huge controversy. So this all stems out of the Patriot Act in the aftermath of 9/11. And I, I guess the kind of common thread that that brings all of that together. The, the Patriot Act, domestic changes and the war on terror and the role of the United States in the world is that 9-11 um, kind of unleashes neoconservatives in the United States. I guess that's, I, I mean, you, look, you make a really good case for September 11 being the a real endpoint to the 1990s and the start of something new, especially in foreign policy. I'm interested in digging in and seeing what it meant in terms of domestic policy. So we've talked, I mean, we've really focused on what this meant for the US abroad. What's happening at home? Well, I think in in a kind of strange way, I think what 9-11 does is both 
almost kind of highlight and obscure what a violent decade 19, the 1990s was, not just in the world, but particularly in the United States. Because well, I guess what 9-11 does is make um, terrorism, and I'm using, like you Chloe, I'm using air quotes, t- terrorism becomes something that comes from outside, from external threats to American liberty. But the, the US in the 1990s is also marked, at least before 9-11, by homegrown terror and, and violence, um, though it's not often called, it's very rarely called terrorism, but that's what it is. Um, 9-11 kind of obscures these two, two events in particular that, are, that I'm thinking of, the first of which is the Oklahoma bombing of 1995, and the second is the Columbine High School massacre of 1999. Okay, so, and I think I can, I think I can see where you're going with this, especially when you say, when you mention that these homegrown events are rarely called terrorism, and that's a debate that's very much alive today. Well, not a debate, I would say it's, you know, a conclusion that's being very much resisted by certain elements on the right today. But can you tell us more about the Oklahoma bombing in 1995? Sure. Um, I, I think this is an, uh, an interesting one in, the, in that kind of semantics that we're talking about, about terrorism, because the Oklahoma bombing, which happened on the 15th of April in 1995, um, killed 168 people. So a guy called Timothy McVeigh um, detonated a truck bomb out the front of a federal building in Oklahoma City. And this is often, at least in hindsight, described as the worst act of homegrown domestic terrorism in US history. And I think that's interesting because, you know, sometimes it's described as terrorism and sometimes it's not, but it also kind of raises the question of how you, how you define terrorism. You know, if this is the greatest act, of, of homegrown terrorism, how do we define things like Westwood expansion and the massacre of native peoples in the United States? How do we describe something like the Tulsa massacre in which you know hundreds of black people are murdered by white by white people who are engaging in a form of terrorism? Um, but to get back to Oklahoma, um, you know, which is, is linked in a way to, to the Tulsa massacre, Tim, Timothy McVeigh, who, who is the main perpetrator and also his accomplice, Terry Nichols, were both white supremacists. So they're motivated by extreme right wing views, um, which include at this time a hatred for the federal government, um, which is taking on, Chloe, as we've, as we've spoken about in the 1990s, is taking on a kind of new virulence um, while Bill Clinton is president. So I think, you know, if we... We look back at the significance of, of Oklahoma and its origins in, in white supremacy. I think part of what we're dealing with in the United States today, as as we watch, you know, in real time, white militias do things like occupy the state legislature in Michigan um, and, and effectively stop the functioning of a democratically elected state government. Um, what we're looking at really is the failure in the 1990s to really confront this kind of domestic terrorism at, at the expense of this external threat and, and confront the resurgence of white supremacy in the United States. That's It's interesting and it brings to mind something that I thought of in the last instalment when we were talking about anti-globalisation protest is how much how much September 11 overshadows both those protests in historical memory and also this white terrorism that you're talking about and how, you know, perhaps part of the reason why we treat these events like they're something so that's new and novel when they happen today is because so much of our perception is 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 really shaped by the war on terror and particularly that decade from 2001 onwards i guess the 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 exception that makes the rule in in that case chloe though is is school shootings in the united states because that is 
something that doesn't begin in in the 1990s but certainly takes on a new form at at the end of the decade with the um, Columbine High School massacre. Um, in 1999, which in fact is directly linked to, to Oklahoma because the two shooters at Columbine um, were directly inspired by Oklahoma and, and Timothy McVeigh and had actually planned this attack not as a shooting originally but as a bombing. They spent a year planning it um, and they executed it on the 20th of April in 1999 when they shot 12 students aged between about 14 and 18 and and one teacher. So so as I said, you know, this is this is far from the first mass shooting in American history. It's not even the first shooting in a school, but it is the first one to be televised live um, and turned into a media event. So this is the first time that something, unfortunately, we're, we're now very familiar with this kind of media playbook of how to deal with a school shooting. This is Columbine is where we see this emerge for the first time. And, and Columbine really creates a, a whole new generation of American school children whose lives are marked by the threat of extreme violence and death in a place where you should be safe. And so, I, you know, I guess it's for that reason that I think Columbine is another, um, I suppose, another end and another beginning um, domestically anyway, because there's really no clearer example of the, the utter failure of failures of Western democracy, you know, in the aftermath of the end of the Cold War and the so-called end of history, because we see, you know, in polling an increasing majority of Americans, 60% at my last check, are in favour of stricter gun regulation, particularly in response to school shootings. Um, and yet we see an, an, an utter failure of so-called democratically elected governments to to deal with this fact. Yeah. And I think that's arguably a very unwelcome hangover from the 90s and it's and it's throwback democracy because I, I remember in our first episode of this series where we were talking about Eric Hobsbawm and his insights into the 90s in 1994 and his writing about how increasingly unelected interests had an influence on democracy where really democracy you know in principle is reflecting the, the majority opinion of the voting public. And I'm talking quite specifically there about the gun lobby in the US, which continues to exercise enormous pre- enormous influence. And this is in inverse proportion to the public opinion that is actually behind strict, you know, behind lax gun laws. Absolutely. And I think what, what happens after Columbine is, is kind of emblematic of the 1990s and that failure to examine exactly, as you say, Chloe, exactly what Hobsbawm's talking about, the, the failure to examine the nature of, of liberal democracy. So that while there's a need, I think, after events like Columbine for a real a really deep reflection um, and action, that doesn't come about. Um, this is, is again, like 9-11, kind of put into the category of an unfathomable evil um, or, you know, the consequence of things like kids playing video games or bullying or, or whatever. There's not a kind of deeper structural examination of, of why these things come about. And, and after Columbine in particular, those failures just compound and compound they kind of pile up on top of each other until we have things like the Sandy Hook massacre in 2012 when when 26 um, people are killed 20 of whom are aged between about six and seven years old um, which is just horrifying you know I um when I was in the US in 2018 I actually didn't realize that Sandy Hook was is is really close to Yale it's actually you know within 
driving distance and we were going on a holiday and it sort of all of a sudden turned a corner and we're driving through Sandy Hook and and honestly it is one of the worst experiences of my life and and driving through that place is when I can kind of pinpoint I suppose the realization that that the U.S. is a failed state that you you cannot call a state that has failed to protect its children in that way in any way successful which I think is you know it's it's you made that observation it must be what that would have been in 2017 right and it's it's that's a dawning realization for a lot of people there have been a lot of a rash of articles recently that have I saw, you know, have talked about the US's failed, completely failed response to the COVID-19 pandemic as evidence that it is a failed state. But the evidence was there much earlier to back up that claim and that argument. And that's really going back to the complete failures of gun laws in, you know, both in the aftermath of Columbine, but also going back as far as, you know, as the gun laws that we spoke about in an early episode of this series of the podcast and the failure of foresight that was in that was in those those gun laws that I believe had that sunset clause that meant that they expired. Yeah, um, unfortunately, you know, as as usual, I think we're in furious agreement. Yes, and we're in furious agreement and reaching a very dire conclusion. I think that everything that you said just then, and particularly about gun laws, and you know, the utter utter failure of American policy to protect its own children. I think that that is and should be proof enough that history did not end in the 1990s, as Francis Fukuyama optimistically claimed it would. So that's the point that we're going to pick up in the next instalment when, you know, and I think without, without, I guess, kind of forecasting the answer, we are going to look at that question of the end of history in the 1990s, how history didn't in fact end, and also the bits that perhaps we left out. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original theme music is by Stuart Cullen.